You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. James, I'm really excited about today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. I want to thank you before we even start for all the help and the connections at the Intel Alumni Network. For all our past guests, Abram Miller, Jeep Klein, all the ones that you've introduced have been amazing, and I know we got so many good ones to come. But James, being in Silicon Valley for as long as you have, you've been here 61 years. Finding someone that's been here that long is rarer than finding a unicorn company. Can you tell us about what you've seen that changes everything over this lifespan of yours? Well, I love the unicorn reference, particularly if you could come up with a billion dollars for me. But be that as it may, it's a very good question. Sean, I am a Silicon Valley native son. I was born and raised here. And the Valley has changed a lot since I was born February 2nd, 1960. And this used to be a place filled with orchards. And now it's known for uh, incredible levels of innovation, doing things differently, thinking about the world differently. And I was both a witness when I was young in the 60s and 70s, and then a participant in the early 80s when I started at Intel, where I worked for 18 years. But in total, I've worked in technology for 36 years and seen a remarkable uh, number of changes and truly evolutionary milestones in the creation of what we now call Silicon Valley. When you were growing up, when did Silicon Valley start to get that feel that everyone talks about? And is that still there? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Really, I, I remember... We were subscribers to National Geographic, and sometime in 1971, we got a copy of the National Geographic that had a full feature article on Silicon Valley, because it used to be known as the Valley of Heart's Delight, with orchards for miles and miles, as far as the eye could see. And even National Geographic back in 1971, and and this was after Intel um, had actually been formed and gone, they had this expose of people sitting in hot tubs, drinking Chardonnay, and the new ethos of of the Santa Clara Valley had become Silicon Valley because of how successful and how rapid the growth was of semiconductor companies coming out of the very late 60s. And again, that was the the formation of Fairchild comes to mind. And soon after that, when uh, the traitorous eight, which included Bob Noyce, Gordon Moore and Andy Grove left Fairchild and formed Intel Corporation. And then a whole lot of people also came out of Fairchild and formed the rest of the core of the semiconductor industry. But that really was just a start because back in the early days, semiconductors were really the purview, the use cases, so to speak, were military use cases by and large or space. That's where um, Silicon Valley really and truly got its bootstrap from. It was Department of Defense, NSA funding and things like that that started what we now uh, have seen as the silicon and the microprocessor revolution evolving into what we see today in the form of Google and Facebook and all the others, as well as the growth of uh, Web 3.0 companies. That's interesting that the foundation of Silicon Valley is so connected with the military When was the first time you heard the term Silicon Valley? Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember it. I remember when we got that National Geographic in our mail because we were subscribers. And I remember uh, really distinctly a picture of a gentleman named Dave House, who is a very well-known 
Intel executive. There was a picture of him with his first wife sitting in a hot tub up in the Sierra, Saratoga foothills, drinking a glass of Chardonnay, watching a sunset. And it typified that kind of, we're doing things differently out here, aren't we kind of hip on sitting in a hot tub with a glass of Chardonnay? And that really was the ethos. And it was all white guy driven, 1970s disco shirts buttoned down to their navel with big gold chains and uh, mustaches and goatees, a 70, late 70s porn star look. And that really was what this valley was like. And I, I remember as a kid, the stories that you'd hear coming, uh, what happened at the Wagon Wheel Bar on Middlefield Road in Mountain View. And there were, they were wild parties there, but many companies, particularly after the formation of Intel, actually came directly out of conversations that happened at the Wagon Wheel on Middlefield Road, which is about a mile and a half from where I grew up. I was born and raised. So you were born and raised here. What was family life like? Were dads in the garage building stuff or was it people just sitting in front of the computer or televisions and as things were going on, what was it like here? There's a lot of truth in cliches and that the cliche of every garage has somebody working in it that's building the next big thing. In fact, growing up as a kid, I, I played and hung out with kids that lived in Mountain View, Sunnyvale, Los Altos, and Palo Alto. If the dad, and it was all, right, who were engineers, class engineers, no, no executives, none of this, what you see, this ostentatious wealth here in Silicon Valley. They were just folks and they were just folks building stuff in their garage, my dad included. My dad was an industrial and mechanical engineer and he thought the next big thing was building high efficiency valves for moving caustic metals and you know, semiconductor plants and fabs. But every father that I knew that was an engineer had that workshop. And that's how homes were built. Homes were built with attached two-car garages, and you divided one half into maybe where you'd store stuff or park the car, and the other half was a shop. And people were building stuff. So growing up in that environment, I'm guessing when you were growing up, you really wanted to become an engineer like your dad. And all the other kids were probably thinking, I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to work in startups. I'm going to work in tech. Was that how it was? I don't know. Come on, Sean. It was the 70s, man. It was sex, drugs, rock and roll, or disco, man. One of the two. I started with the rock and roll part and ended up in the disco part with uh, tight angel, angel's flight jeans for those uh, listeners out there who might remember that fashion. Look it up. Saturday night fever suit in the Smithsonian. That's what the Valley was like. It was trendsetting. It was anything that was a new wild kind of idea. That was okay. And Really, when you think about it, and a lot has been written about this, is the importance of centers of higher learning in Silicon Valley. When people always talk about Stanford, and then they, in the second breath, mention Berkeley. But really, when you look at the educational institutions of Silicon Valley, they're a whole lot broader than that, right? It includes UCSF. It includes San Jose State. It includes University of Santa Clara. Those all fed, particularly as I remember very distinctly, as the semiconductor industry was being built into the 70s and the early 80s, that Intel and other semiconductors that are, companies did a very smart thing going out and reaching into University of Santa Clara and San Jose State and places like that to get a lot of line employees. Because in many ways, much like today, there was an explosion in employment. Talent, people were fighting for talent. I remember back when I was a kid, and in fact, much to my chagrin, my father 
who had been offered two founders positions in Apple, which he turned down because he we knew the uh, the Wozniaks, Jerry Wozniak and his son, Steve, and obviously his wife. We knew them quite well. My dad turned that down. And then my dad turned down a position at in, to work at Intel pre-IPO. So there was, even back then, we could see that there was something special. There was something truly special going on here that was unique, that was unpredictable. We just, none of us beyond maybe jobs, really, I think, no one really understood or had a vision for where all this Silicon Revolution was going to take us. And I remember famously Gordon Moore, one of Intel's founders, being asked what he thought a personal computer in the home would be good for. It was before the mid-70s when Apple was building its kit and Woz started the computer you know, home club down in, on Castro Street in, in, in Mountain View. Gordon said, oh, the use case, well, I think, I don't know what people would use it for, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. I don't know what people would use it for, but I think it would really help Betty organize her recipes. So certainly the, the people at Intel, the PhDs in chemistry and physics and mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, they didn't really have a complete vision. And it, maybe it's unfair to, to hold them to task of that, but they didn't know what was going to truly happen. So organizing recipes, certainly you can do a hell of a lot more now with modern computers, let alone smartphones, than organized recipes. When you look at the history of the Valley, there is a whole lot of unintended consequences to the innovation that we've created. And I, I think up until the late 2000s, as we, we got out of the dot-com bubble that ran up, really started in 1995 with uh, Netscape going public and the introduction of the freemium uh, business model. But we really, I don't think we ever really began to grapple with the unintended consequences of what we've created. And that is a huge change from when I was a kid. When I was a kid, it was all about engineers, truly engineers in their garage, figuring out what the next big thing is. Like my buddy, Cobert Smith, his dad was really good friends with Nolan Bushnell. And Nolan, Nolan Bushnell is the founder of Atari. I remember Cobert when he and I were young teenagers being up at this house playing with a beta version of Pong. I got a kid now who's 30 years old where he's studying blockchain and crypto and how cool that is. So there's just been a huge change in terms of the evolution of technology and the impact of that technology on human beings. And I think for the first time in my life, I can truly say that I'm seeing some unintended consequences that are not good. And that is a huge change between when I was a kid. When I was a kid, it was all about building the next big thing. And if we built it, it would all be good. Go a little bit further into that. And I do want to go back and find out how you ended up at Intel and that, especially being here in the, the ecosystem. But we just held an event, the Intel Alumni Network, celebrating the 50th anniversary, the introduction of the 4004 uh, microprocessor. And it, it was a family. It was a grouping of chips, but it was a complete solution. And Intel, for the first time, was able to offer a microprocessor that could run a calculator. That with the introduction of the microprocessor in 1971, November of 71, you really see the beginning, the beginning, the seed corn, so to speak, of what has now become Silicon Valley. The 4004 begat the, eight, the 8008, which begat the 8080, which begat the 88. And these are all Intel microprocessors. And the reason they're so important 
wasn't like there weren't other semiconductor companies out there thinking about and or designing and releasing microprocessors to the market. But Intel was the first company to really be able to put it into one very neat platform, which included not just the chips, but a boot ROM and memory and compilers and things like that. That was what sparked this revolution. You see the revolution as it begins to unfold. Going into the 80s, we begin to see the rise of the personal computer. And of course, with DARPA funding, the what's called the OSI stack, which is a networking stack, which includes internet working protocol, which is what the internet is based on. You, you see the combination of the invention of networking plus the microprocessor and all the other software on top of it, that becomes the personal computer, essentially the, the connected personal computer industry. And then you see the Netscape going public in 1995. So they, somebody, the smart people over at Netscape, including Jim Clark and Mark Andreessen, they see that there's an opportunity to begin to connect people and their computing power together. They form Netscape. They invent the freemium model, which is incredibly important. If you really look at all the Web 2.0 companies, they are all some version of that freemium model that Netscape introduced in 1995. And you asked me earlier, did I, what big changes did I see? 1995, the day it went public, Netscape went public, you could see the sea change. Back prior to that, it was about the product. It was about engineering. It was about guys in their garages tinkering around like my dad, like Jerry Wozniak, like all the fathers that I grew up with. It changed. And what changed is it, it, it really invited, lack of a better term, invited Wall Street to play in our backyard. So the investment bankers start showing up. And this is in addition to the, the uh, venture capital community that still the same top flight firms from the 80s, like Sequoia and the like. That began to change. Right? And it became about the money. It became about the IPO. It drove the bubble, the first web 1.0 bubble. And then you see Facebook, Netscape, excuse me, Facebook, Google, Amazon, all begin to take off based on this new business model, all enabled with a central processing computing infrastructure. And that is where my previous employer, Intel, really shined. They've hence had a lot of challenges, but Intel really ended up being the seminal company to make the vision of Silicon Valley such that it was a reality. So going back, you grew up here. You could have ended up working at Apple, you could have ended up working at so many companies. How did you choose? To be quite frank, I had a career prior uh, to working in tech. Back when I was a kid, no self-respecting kid that went to high school, Mountain View, Los Altos, Palo Alto, Sunnyvale, Cupertino, wanted to follow their engineering father into engineering because it was the late 70s and we were all rebels. So very few of my contemporaries went into technology. And originally, I wasn't going to go in as, at all. I wanted to be a labor lawyer. I ended up getting a degree in economics and political science. I became a Senate intern in Washington, D.C. with Reagan's first inaugural. And then I competed for and was awarded a 1982 California Assembly Fellows Fellowship during the time of Willie Brown, who was a, the, one of the very famous speakers of the of the uh, California State Legislature. I didn't do very well in politics. I'm I, at my core, I'm still a nerd, even though I may not have gotten the engineering degree. I, I count myself as a uh, honorary nerd. 
And I, I just didn't like politics. I came back home and I went to my dad and I go, hey, dad, we still know people at Intel and Apple, don't we? Can you put me in contact with them? And he did. And I got my resume submitted. And Intel in October of 83 made could either go into HR or production planning. And I went and talked to some of our Intel friends that we had, the Whittier, Ron Whittier at the time. And he said, James, absolutely do not go into HR. <laughs> go into production planning. Go into where the business is, where we're running fabs. Uh, okay. I, di I didn't know any better. And as of October of 83, and the rest is history. I, I literally stumbled into it by dumb accident. I'm very blessed that, it, that my father and my family had connections back with people. And then uh, Apple, oddly enough, three weeks after I joined Intel, came back to offer me a job, which of course I couldn't leave Intel after accepting a job three weeks prior. I think most people nowadays would have, would have, would have bounced. Would have picked Apple. <laughs> yeah, I, I <laughs> would have left after three weeks. They wouldn't have cared. Yeah. Well, back in those days, we, it, was, it was a little bit different, right? I mean, long-term employment wasn't guaranteed in the 80s. It had been very clear. Businesses made that clear, but there was a certain loyalty that companies had that I don't think you see present now in Silicon Valley or for that matter anywhere in the U.S. Now, growing up here, I got to ask again, you mentioned Wozniak, you mentioned Jobs, you mentioned some names. Are there any stories that you can share with us about any of these people in Silicon Valley or just any Silicon Valley story? God, can I give away confidences? Well, it's not anything... These versions of these stories have been told by a lot of people, but I have a kind of a unique perspective on them. And the, the one that comes to mind the most, my favorite one, is prior to Apple building Apple or Waz and Steve Jobs and also a guy named Bill Fernandez, who was really an Apple employee number two or three. Bill was the head of GUI design, always for Apple. But the three of them... The three of them got, got together and in their garage, in, in originally in Jobs' garage, and began to, put, began to put the Apple PC together. Prior to that, they built something called the Blue Box. And if you dig into Silicon Valley history, this is actually a real famous story of the evolution of Apple. Woz built the Blue Box, and basically it was a device. I can't, I can't even really describe it to you. I know it was just square and... My uncle in New York bought one, and it was used to rip off long-distance phone calls from AT&T. And, of course, that really pissed off AT&T, and they ended up going after anybody who bought one with the FBI. My uncle John, who was a six-foot-five drag queen actor in New York, is a hysterical guy, very funny. I was in the Ridiculous Theater Company in New York, head by a gentleman named Charles Ludlam. And uh, those people who are theater nerds will know who he is. But uh, the FBI chased my uncle for three years. He was really pissed at Apple. So when Jerry Wozniak came back and asked my dad, I think it was the second time that Jerry came back, said, hey, John, will you, will you put in, I asked you for $5,000 last time for friends and family investment in my son's company, Apple. How about throwing in 15000 now in kind of the second round of friends and family. And my dad says, there is no way I'm giving those pot smoking teenagers who invent dangerous products a dime of my money because they, my uncle, my mom's brother was being chased by the FBI for ripping off AT&T long distance phone calls. So this is, these kind of funny personal stories are kind of part of it. The you know, other one was the one I mentioned earlier about Pong. And my best friend's dad was really good friends with Nolan Bushnell. 
we got to play, I played a ver beta version of Pong and quite literally we had to run it off a cassette recorder. And I forgot how we even attached it to the TV, but we had to do something special to attach it to a black and white TV. And we played that. We got stoned and, and we played it for a bunch of hours for two days. And our only thing we had to do was write down for my friend Cobert's dad what we thought of the game. So we were early beta testers, albeit high beta testers, playing with Pong. So the Valley, I, I don't think anybody these days, any kid that I know of would have been that close unintentionally to what ended up being the seeds of innovation. And that's, when it, that's why when I look at the arc of my life at six, almost 62 years old, how amazing this trip has actually been. And just how fast it happened, it, it is, I don't recognize, I don't recognize a lot of Silicon Valley anymore. It has truly changed into something good and something not so good. And, and I, again, like I mentioned earlier, I think that's the big change, right? We were all but kids of you know, sons and daughters of engineers building things that they thought would just improve the betterment of humanity. And then we have things like Facebook that get created that can do horrible things to people and democracies. I would have never have thought that in a million years. I would have never have thought of high performance computing, AI, ML, and, as well as the rise of bioscience tools like CRISPR. We are truly in... In my mind, we are at a phase in the evolution of science and technology that's really, truly unprecedented. It is not slowing down. It's speeding up. And it all started, it really all started here. And I, 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 don't think that, I don't think that is an exaggeration. And that's something that really came through to me talking to Pat Gelsinger when we interviewed Pat, who's the current CEO of Intel. And he gave us a, a five-minute a video of him speaking as well as interviewing Gordon Moore of just how seminal and how important the introduction of the 4004 microprocessor was back November of 1971. Because it really, when you think about the evolution of information technology, first we start with the spoken word. We're all cavemen sitting around the fire and we learn to speak. Next big revolution, wherever it happened, we, we figured out we could write things down. So we created an alphabet and we created words. Or if we were in Asia, we created characters. Then you go a long time until about 1456 when Gutenberg invents the movable, movable type by uh, printing press and begins to print the Bible and uh, really um, sparks the Reformation and 100 years of religious war in Europe. Now, people technically will say, hey, look, James, you know, the Chinese really invented the printing press. And I go, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. But Gutenberg democratized. Printing presses exploded in production after 1456, despite Gutenberg trying to keep it as a monopoly. And in less than a decade, it went from one printing press to hundreds all over Europe. And then that really, when you really think about it, that is the beginning of our information technology revolution because everything led from information is democratized. Anybody can buy a pamphlet. They can buy a book. The prices of books crater in the next hundred years. And you don't, you see a lot of, I, at least in my opinion, you see a lot of intermediate technological introductions like the loom. The loom is very important in terms of digital architecture because a loom basically creates zeros and ones. 
either the needle goes through and pushes a thread back to the back to the cloth you're making, or it's a zero and it doesn't. That's the beginning of von Neumann architecture, zeros and ones. And then I think you see that next big introduction is November of 1971. I don't think this is hyperb. The, the introduction of, of Intel's 4004, it is truly one of those seminal events in information technology. And again, like I said earlier, it's not that Intel had a lock on building CPUs or lots of people pursuing CPUs, but Intel was the first one to truly make it successful outside of selling semiconductors, and it was mostly memory semiconductors, to the mini and mainframe industry. This is the first time you really see a microprocessor show up in a handheld scientific application. And in this case, it was a calculator. So with that, it sounds like Intel was the core for everything in Silicon Valley. Is that almost a fair statement to say or not? Well, there's the whole after the traitorous eight left. In was that early 68 or late 67? I can't remember. You know, I was only seven, eight years old back then, so I didn't know any of these guys. But it really, Intel, I think, truly is the most consequential company. They didn't necessarily build the best, but they built the most complete. And they knew how to market the hell out of what they built. Intel, for a bunch of PhD nerds who are not the Apple guys, because again, like we talked about, Apple guys understood use cases, right? That's what they special in. How would an ordinary human being figure out you know, what to do with this? Intel was not that kind of company. Intel had Busycom, which was the company in Japan that wanted to build a calculator, but use build it with a microprocessor inside or, the, or something equivalent to it. So when Intel got that design, when they won the socket, Intel actually didn't even have the 4004. Intel basically out of whole cloth, the 4004 design team and the architects and the design teams and the manufacturing experts all and the marketing, sales and marketing experts all had to get together as a team and make the 4004 happen. So you see, that is actually a big um, evolution in terms of how true innovation now takes place. When you think about it and you go back to the Renaissance, you had... Isaac Newton sitting under a tree, witnessing an apple fall on his head. He was basically one guy in a lab. And how he communicated was via letters. He didn't have big groups of people around him. Fast forward to today, what did you have? You have massive teams to make. Even back in the 70s, you had dozens of people that would be involved in making something successful. And Intel did that with 4004. They got all the pieces right. So it allowed Intel to basically win that calculator business from Busycom and then say, okay, how else am I going to apply microprocessors? And Intel being a company driven by nerds, they didn't really, really didn't think about PCs. It was really more Waz and, and Jobs and Billy Fernandez. Intel was thinking about industrial, largely industrial, real-time industrial control applications or replacing some beginning to try to get microprocessors baked into minis and mainframes. There's a lot there, but let's take it a little to the present and the future. What should we focus on or where do you think Silicon Valley is going to be? Where should we pay attention? I think we're getting smarter at predicting what might happen in the future. But man, I feel a little bit like the guys did back in the 70s, right? Where you're trying to figure out where the hell things are going to go. As long as Moore's Law or something equivalent to Moore's Law continues apace, 
and we see the you know performance of microprocessors con continue to double every two years. I I think the sky's the limit. I think the question becomes, what do you? I think it really begins. It, it begs the question: before we invent this technology, should we? And if we do, what are the guardrails? And again, I, I talked about earlier, I think that's a big change from when I was a kid. When I was a kid, it was Field of Dreams, build it and they'll come. And that worked really well for 50 years. Now, we have the ability now to edit germ cells. And germ cells are basically the you know, sperm and ovum. We can edit that. And we use a combination to do that of high-performance computing, artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms, as well as tools like CRISPR. We need to begin to ask ourselves, should we? You know, if we do, let's think about that. Because I think you see now the rise of technology, not just exterior to us, but becoming integral parts of us physically. Certainly the Fitbit and the Apple Watch are examples of technology that is beginning to be integrated into us physically. That's a huge change. Right. What happens when Neuralink, which is one of Elon Musk's Musk's companies, truly begins to figure out the brain, the brain to sensor interface, and we are able to do things uh, for human beings that we've never thought of building ports into our skull? That is not beyond the realm of possibility at all in the next ten to twenty years. What what does that mean? That's right around the corner. We need to start having these discussions. And I'm actually heartened. I watched, was watching a House committee hearing to, this morning before I came to see you. But they were interviewing some of the leaders in cri cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. And I was so happy compared to back in the, the 90s to hear lawmakers actually ask intelligent questions about the implications of blockchain technology and cryptocurrency on the US dollar, on people, how they bank, how they get their financial services, who owns their data. These are all very important questions that I would never have thought of as a kid. So it's privacy, policy, security, who owns my data? These are questions, and think about it. Once you get that interface built into your body, which will happen, I think, in, in my lifetime before I pass you know, from this planet, someone's going to be gathering up terabytes of data on how my body functions, or at least the ability will be there. And we need to think about that. Again, these are unintended consequences of the evolution of technology, and I have seen too much of the unintended consequences. So back when I was a kid playing with Pong, I just thought it was a fun game. When I saw Netscape go public and I was arguing with my ex-wife whether to buy stock at, at an elevated $50 a share IPO, we finally did. We, made so, we doubled our money and then sold. Who would have ever thought that what could possibly be wrong with free? There's a shitload wrong with free when you combine human nature and technology in ways that create unintended consequences. So I think that will be the challenge for my son, Trevor, who just turned 30 years old this year, who grew up his entire life. He never grew up without a computer. He was the first generation, the first millennial generation that every child had a computer, more or less, in the home, or at least access to one, even if they had to go to the library. That is a massive change. And the, the thing we need to be careful about technology is how insidiously 
and we've seen this with the rise of social media and Facebook and Twitter, we have seen how information technology can creep into our lives in ways and get us to act in ways that is not good for us personally and is certainly not good for our democracy. I guess what I'm saying is I, I think the future of Silicon Valley is up and to the right. I sure as hell would not, I wouldn't bet against Silicon Valley at all. I think with anything, what will happen is we'll see the Silicon, I think you're seeing this, I think you're seeing the Silicon Valley ethos being adopted for better or for worse in all sorts of places around the United States. And there are sure a whole lot of people trying to replicate it across the world. But we need to add that other dimension, I think, which is if we can invent it, should we? And if we do, what are we? What do we think some of the unintended consequences of that technology creation? What do we think it might be? And do policymakers need to be? And I'm not an advocate for more regulation. I'm very much a capitalist. But the externalities that get created by the creation of technology, it's a term in microeconomics, externalities, right? The externalities of burning fossil fuel as carbon in our atmosphere, right? There are many externalities that create, get created with technology that gets integ seamlessly integrated into our life that we do not understand now because it's too powerful, right? It's more powerful than we are. And we have seen it because we have seen people's human beings' behaviors change by interfacing with that technology in a way that's not healthy for them, it's not healthy for the country, and it's not healthy for the planet. You'd mentioned other geographic locations trying to adopt the Silicon Valley ethos, trying to maybe copy. What have been some of the critical advantages that you've seen that are here in Silicon Valley? It, I, I hate, <laughs> I don't mean to keep going back to Intel because it was the place that I worked from 83 into 2001, but it really bears highlighting Andy Grove. And when Andy Grove wrote the book, High Output Management, I think it was published in 73. I could be wrong there, but it's 73. But basically, when you think about Silicon Valley as an ethos, from an operational perspective, Andy Grove Nobody could run a company truly better than Andy Grove. And that was, we all knew when we, you know, working in, in, at Intel, I was on the sixth, uh, fifth floor of the Robert Noyce building and, you know, Andy and Gordon and Craig Barrett were there. And, you know, everyone knew when Andy talked to Jobs or Gates, the rumor mill would go around the fifth floor. And it was well known that both Jobs and Gates would actually call Andy up for advice, particularly around how do you run a high output company? In terms of keeping the trains around on time, high output management is the template um, for how Silicon Valley really operates. In fact, all, the evidence, all you have to do is go take a look at what John Doerr, when John Doerr published his book, uh, Measure What Matters. Basically, he takes part of Andy Grove's book, High Output Management, the first pillar, Objectives and Key Results, and basically explains how he took that to Google and other companies that were in his portfolio. So that's an example from an operational perspective of how Intel influenced how the rest of Silicon Valley works. And by extension, people are copying that basically around the world because now they're after John Doerr's book, which was only published about four or five years ago. There is an entire SaaS OKR objectives and key results industry that IDC, International Data Corp, is actually tracking 
as a software segment. And you will see, I think, because they, it is such a simple, Andy was so good at these simple tools around high output management that I think what you'll see is you'll see companies begin to incorporate the other elements of the operational excellence of Intel. And it's basically how do you run effective meetings, which sounds simple, but it's harder than it looks. Risk-taking and decision-making and constructive confrontation. So your question is, is, has the ethos, you know, is the ethos moved to other places? Yeah, there is a practical guide. There's a book and there's an entire software industry that's risen up. How do you run high output companies? But also it's the mentality. And then when you think about that, it's the mentality of risk-taking. It's the mentality of raising money, risk money from venture capitalists. I think you've seen the rise of venture funds, whether they're sovereign wealth funds or merchant venture capitals, capitalists around the world, as well as locating some of these centers close to uh, centers of higher learning. Now, a lot of people say well, that's an example of Silicon Valley becoming less important and less valuable and it's going away. I think that way underestimates what this valley has going for it. Because at the end of the day, early trends really, truly start here. The one real exception, the one center that I am most fascinated about is Israel and Tel Aviv. Really? Israel and Tel Aviv? Particularly Tel Aviv. And again, here, Andy Grove shows up again. Andy Grove built the first fab in Israel. Ellie, a guy named Eli Harari, who went on to start SanDisk, basically bootstrapped Intel's footprint in Tel Aviv. And Andy was very keen on starting a branch of Intel Capital there. And, and if you, in fact, if you look at Intel uh, Capital and you interviewed Avram Miller recently, who founded Intel Capital, um, Intel's capital is by, by far the largest and most successful strategic venture capitalist in the world. There's nobody bigger. Standing on its own, it would be a multi-billion dollar company, all on its own. And yeah, the merchants and venture capitalists will poo-poo it and say, oh, those guys aren't really VCs. But they really are. I spent two years there. So I know what Avram Miller built, and I know what uh, Les Videz built, who was employee number three, and he was running um, Intel Capital when I was there in 98. We know how to, the Valley knows how to do it, Intel Capital knows how to do it, and certainly Israel does, because now you have the whole startup nation in Israel. And uh, we have friend, I have a good friend of mine on the, our board of directors, the Intel Alumni Network Board of Directors, that is part of a group called uh, Next Leap Ventures, which is a whole group of Intel alumnus who basically started their own venture fund. And their unique advantage that they pitch is they allow the investors in the audience to vote. And, and the thought is it's the wisdom of the crowd. Give it to the crowd. Let's see what they think. And they've actually uh, had three successful ed- exits so far and two IPOs. So sold to you know, SPACs, three companies, and two IPOs. It's pretty remarkable. So that's an example of the, the Silicon Valley ethos really taking place. I don't know. And I, I know if I'm insulting somebody out there, I apologize. You know, there are places like Austin and Boston and Seattle and Portland and around the United States that are centers as well. But that's basically, a lot of that is, is transplants directly from the Bay Area. And, but the connection's still back here in the Valley in terms of investment and innovation still take place here. What about in terms of the concept or the context of Silicon Valley success and the West with killer apps? 
I was scared you were going to ask me that question because that brings me to my favorite, one of my favorite authors, Neil Ferguson, who, among others, wrote uh, The Square and the Tower, and he wrote a book called Civilization, colon, the, the West and the Rest. And basically, the two most important, what he calls are six killer apps that uh, Western Europe is basically responsible for. It. And more specifically, Northern Europe, not perfected. It starts with competition and science. And those two, two of the four, uh, six killer apps, competition and science are incredibly important because it led to the rest. So in Europe, both the countries as well as the city states in Renaissance Europe all competed with each other brutally. It ultimately ended up in with, unfortunately, World War I and World War II as its all, you know, ultimate result. But the fact is that those countries truly innovated and they exported that, particularly the English, they exported it to the United States. And that whole way of doing things, competing with one another, utilizing science and technology, and then the coming enlightenment after that in terms of how you work with and treat people, those are incredibly two, really two important killer apps that makes us different. Now, he also goes on to talk about the importance of medicine and private property rights and the what he calls the Protestant work ethic. And I can never remember the sixth one. My apology, Neil. But this is these killer apps. When you look at what's happened in Silicon Valley, it has embodied them and grown them, particularly around competition and, and science. It, it is truly amazing. This is, if you're going to do something remarkable, to quote Robert Noyce, go out and do something remarkable, you do it here. Come here. Yeah, people come here first, and then they'll, maybe they'll go somewhere else and they'll scale their company in another country or they'll scale it in a, another city in the United States. But at the end of the day, there's just too much going on here. How long it will last? I have no idea. Venice... How long was Venice the powerhouse of Europe? A couple hundred years? Who knows? So I still think we're early in the, the evolution of Silicon Valley. So with that evolution, what do you have planned for the next 10 years, say, for yourself or your family? Traveling a lot to the Southwest Desert, scuba diving. What else am I going to do? I'm going to ski again? No, but in all seriousness. What I'm most interested in is being involved with and I think this may be a function of getting into your 60s, is trying to figure out what this, what is this all about, right? Why is this important, right? What are, what is our history? What are the undertold stories in the history of uh, Silicon Valley, a place where I witnessed remarkable change and uh, was part of remarkable change? I really want to try to understand that. Right. And it's because I think we are at such and I've talked to more than one person that's who are much smarter than I am. I asked him, what do you think about what's going on today? And to a person, they have said, oh, my God, if I could only be alive to be a young man or a young woman today, what amazing opportunities and things I could do, because now you have all of the tools right? The tools are dirt cheap. When priests hand wrote Bibles, the only people that owned Bibles were cardinals and bishops. Printing press changed that equation, right? And by corollary, the invention of the microprocessor and the building of all the computing and networking infrastructure we see today is so cheap that you don't even think about it these days. The technology, and this is both a great blessing and a great danger, the technology is beginning to be hidden. We're beginning to assume it. 
right? It's just part of our lives. And so going back to what we talked about earlier, as we create the next generation of remarkable things, which is going on right now, there's nothing in the way of this, ha- this innovation in the next 10 years to happen. Before I die, I am going to witness, I think, step function changes in the technology that is developed and that humans use for good and for bad. Okay. And with that, what do you have in store for the Intel Alumni Network? What is the Intel Alumni Network working on right now? Sean, we're hoping to continue to lean on your friendship and your incredible interviewing capabilities to do that. What we're going to do next year is a combination of some historical events, looking back into key milestones in the evolution of Silicon Valley. We The first of those was the 4004 event, which we held this last week. The second is we're going to do a series of thought leadership pieces. And the first one we're going to do is interview the head of London's National Grid Corporation. She's the head of their venture capital arm, a very, very successful venture capital arm. The lady's name is Lisa Lambert. We're going to interview her. I think it's very timely in the context of the passage of the the infrastructure bill, the first infrastructure bill. Because right now, if if I could snap my fingers and everyone drove could drive an EV across the United States, the grid would collapse tomorrow. So we're going to talk to uh, Lisa about that and get her thoughts on uh, where it's going, where people are making investments. And the other one I really want to dig into because there's a lot of people who are a whole lot smarter than me who've been talking about this, and I want to understand it better. I want to understand the intersection of high-performance computing, AI, and ML with biosciences, with tools like CRISPR. The kind of the plan is, is we want to get the, through our network, get the head of Stanford's computer science department and somebody from Jennifer Doudna's CRISPR lab department up at Berkeley, and somebody from Intel who's been working, maybe a gentleman named Sunil Shinoy, who I love. He's going back and he's running the data center group at Intel these days. He left Sci-5. I went, they have a very interesting company, but that's completely different story. To interview, have Sunil interview these two great people, from one from Stanford, one from Berkeley, to understand the integration of high-performance computing, computer science, and biosciences. Because I think it, the cyborgs, are, cyborgs have arrived and they are us. It'd be nice to know what they, we might look like in the next 10 years. And James, with that, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, the Intel on my network, or anything that's going on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Simple. Best way is reach out to me through LinkedIn. Just type in James Cape. I'm the only, I'm the first James Cape that will pop up. Okay. We'll have that information in the show notes. And for everyone out there, please connect with us on thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. Look for us. Our podcast is the Silicon Valley Podcast. You can find on podcast platform and connect with me on social media and on LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV to find out what I do outside the podcast where I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisitions, raising growth capital and secondaries. If you have any questions, please reach out. But with that, James, I want to thank you and the Intel Alumni Network for all the help, your support on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you, Sean. You've been a great partner and friend of the Intel Alumni Network. Thank you so much from our board as well as our membership. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.